God is doing uh, in and through those churches. Uh, that'll be kind of the pattern here uh, over uh, the course of a year, as I will be the majority of the time with you all. But uh, some Sundays I'll also be traveling and visiting with other churches. So I'm grateful that our, our church has been well-resourced by God, having numerous people uh, who can speak uh, well and, and uh, deliver uh, God's Word to us. So, uh, Brendan, thanks for speaking last week. I also neglected to tell Brendan that it was Communion Sunday, so thank you for your quick thinking, Brendan, on Communion. That was very good. Uh, We're going to continue our teaching series today in the book of Ephesians. Uh, If you have a Bible, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21 is our our text for the morning. Uh, I'm looking forward uh, to walking through this passage. Um, we're, We're really getting into much more practical stuff in this book, so that's our, our, uh, focus for the morning. It's a little bit longer section. I'm going to read right through it, pray, and then we'll dive in, all right? Apostle Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints." Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, or crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, Do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful uh, that you have made yourself known to us. Uh, That when we look in the scriptures, we can see who you are. Uh, We see the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, We see your instructions for us, how you're calling us to follow Jesus Christ. And Lord, uh, your word is both good and at times challenging. Uh, You give it to us to to correct us. And we all, Lord, need correction. Yet, Lord, it is hard to have that. So I pray this morning for your grace and your truth uh, to lead us and to guide us. God, I pray you'd speak mercifully to us about the areas in our life that need correction, but remind us that much more of your love for us in Jesus Christ, your promise to forgive our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and Lord, to lead us on the path of love. 
So we thank you for your good intentions towards us, and we ask your blessing now on this time of teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my wife Wendy and I uh, enjoy going for walks. Uh, we've had that pattern for a while now. Uh, back when we lived up in Alton, we had a walking route that we typically took. We took our, our little dog and went for a walk slash drag, because by the end, she was not really walking that well. Uh, but we got back to our house, and then we always enjoyed that time together, debriefing the day, uh, being able to connect with each other, getting a little exercise as well. So when we moved down here, one of our first questions was, where are we going to walk? And uh, so I took out my phone, you know, opened the All Trails app, and started looking at the little walks in the area near us. So we found a few. Uh, there was the Pickering Ponds Trail, uh, there was the Gonic Trails, there was the Dover Community Trails, and we tried those out and really enjoyed a lot of these walking trails. Now, in the second half of the book of Ephesians, uh, part of the text we're looking at today, what we have here is kind of like the Apostle Paul giving us walking directions. A number of times in this passage, he uses the word walk. Um, Ephesians 5.2, he says, walk in love. Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of the light. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. And this is very typical for the second half of the book of Ephesians. Uh, one of the commentators that I've been reading as I've been studying the book of Ephesians, uh, Daryl Johnson, uh, he calls uh, his commentary, Ephesians, the wonder and the walk of being alive in Christ. And the first half of Ephesians is all about the wonder, having our eyes opened to see what Jesus has done, so to see him raised from the dead, seated in the place of authority in heaven, and all that's ours because of what he has accomplished. Then the second half of the book begins with actually this phrase over here on the chalkboard, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. In light of the wonder that we see in Jesus Christ, Here's how we can live, how we can walk through life with our eyes opened to Jesus Christ. So the second half of the book of Ephesians is quite practical. Now, if I'm going to go for a walk on the Pickering Ponds Trail, what that means is that I cannot at the same time, on the same day, in the same moment, be going for a walk on the Gonic uh, Trail. Either I am at the Pickering Ponds trailhead, or I am at the Gonic trailhead. I cannot be at both places at the same time. And the Apostle Paul is telling us, if we are to walk in love, if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the call of the gospel, then there are some ways that we cannot walk at the same time. We cannot be in the same location at the same time, in love or in darkness. Uh, enjoying God's love, living according to the instructions of Jesus, or walking in sin. We cannot be walking in the same places at the same time. That's Paul's perspective here. And so what we want to look at today is one of the major forks in the road that comes into all of our lives that we have to decide. Are we going to decide to walk toward God in love with Jesus, following his instructions, or will we choose to walk away from God, away from love, following our own inclinations? And that fork in the road is the is the fork in the road of our sexuality. And Paul goes into that topic in this chapter here, Ephesians 5 today. Now, Ephesians 5, 3, he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. So he's saying, if we are going to walk in love, we can't be walking 
in sexual immorality. They, they don't go in the same direction, he's saying. We can't be there at the same time. So for those of you that are note takers, uh, we're going to consider three questions today, all right? Uh, the first question is, what is the Christian sexual ethic? Well, what does the Bible have to say about sex? That's the first question. The second one is, why is the Christian teaching good? What's good about it? And then the third is, how can we live it? So what is it? Why is it good? How can we live it? All right. You guys buckled up and ready for this one? Your, your excitement is palpable. All right. First, what is the Christian sexual ethic? What does the Bible say about sex? Uh, first, quite simply, sex is good. Now, you might be thinking, you studied all week, Sam, for that deep insight? Your hours of study have paid off. Yeah. Um, Yes, the, the, the scriptures begin with this affirmation that sex is created by God and is a good thing. Uh, look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 uh, and 31. We're in the beginning of the Bible. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything he had made, and behold... It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. At the beginning of the scriptures, God creates life. Everything that we can see. And, and God, at the pinnacle of creation, creates human beings. And he presents them to one another. And this is his idea. That God creates sexuality to be this life-giving, intimate expression that proceeds from his heart and nature. Now, the reason we need to make this simple observation that sex is good is because so often we are tempted to think that it was not God's idea to make sex good. What Satan would like us to think is that it's his idea. And that's sometimes how it gets spun, you know? God's realm is Bible study, coming to church meetings, singing songs, you know, things that are more fun like sex, that's Satan's domain. And that's quite the opposite. This was God's creation, God's good intention for humanity. I mean, the Bible goes on to say wonderfully positive things about sex. Proverbs gives us wisdom uh, for uh, enjoying sexuality within marriage. The Song of Songs is frankly so uh, erotic that most translators can't bring themselves to fully translate it the way the Hebrew really wants to be translated. I mean, it is a just unabashed celebration of marital sexuality. Jesus goes on to affirm the goodness of marriage in his teaching, and then the book of Revelation, the Bible concludes with the wedding feast, this celebration of God and humanity's union together with a, a wedding feast. And the Bible is incredibly positive about sexuality. Now, we need to be reminded of that, not only because Satan's intention is to subtly uh, tell us lies otherwise, but also, unfortunately, we live in a broken world, and so many of our experiences tell us otherwise. There is great hurt, harm, abuse that comes to so many of us in the realm of our sexuality. And for those of you that are here that have experienced that, I grieve with you about that. God intended this to be a good, life-giving, unifying act, and so often it has been twisted and is not that way. So, first uh, aspect of the Christian sexual ethic is that sex is good. 
The second aspect of the Christian sexual ethic is that sex is, is uh, meant to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, we see the beginning of the story and how God unpacks what He intends for us, for humanity. Um, it says there that, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, so much going on in this passage here. The, the phrase to focus on is this phrase, one flesh. That God intended man and woman to come together, two different but complementary beings, to come together in oneness. And it requires different but complementary beings for this kind of union to happen that God designs. And this one flesh is about far more than just bodies coming together. I mean, the phrase here is rich with meaning. But it is about whole persons coming together, souls coming together. And the teaching of the Scripture goes on to talk about the oneness that models the oneness of the Trinity. There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, God is three but one, distinct in person, yet united. And somehow... In marriage, there is a demonstration of that kind of oneness, distinction, yet complementary beings becoming one. So the scriptures are saying that this one flesh reality is pictured in marriage, pointing us to who God is. And then it goes on to say in this passage here that there's a context for this one flesh kind of union. He said it's the context of holding fast. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, older translations use the word cleave, uh, to leave and cleave. That, that word there, it's a covenant word. It's covenant language. Um, it speaks about like a permanent union, like a binding kind of agreement. Our wedding vows speak to that, right? Where we say that we, we promise to have and to hold from this day forward till death do us part. That's the language there. And it's not simply we are attracted to someone and desire someone, therefore we become one flesh. It's within the context of covenant. And the scriptures are painting to us the wonder, the beauty of covenant within which our sexuality is expressed. The result here is that Adam and Eve, husband and wife, were naked and unashamed. Naked, fully vulnerable, fully transparent, and unashamed. That it was more than just their bodies. It was the whole person being given to another unashamedly. And there is a joyful reception of one another. We were made for that kind of intimacy, that kind of closeness, that kind of belonging. Sex is to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the, the biblical teaching uh, around this topic. Third aspect of, uh, of a Christian sexual ethic is that sex is about more than just our bodies. God isn't just making up rules, here's what you should do and not do with your bodies. He's speaking to a deeper reality. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 20, Paul is referencing the Genesis teaching. And he, he says, uh, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's the Genesis teaching. 
But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul says there's more than just our bodies being joined together during this wonderful act of sex. That somehow God is involved. For a person who's a follower of Jesus Christ, who has God's Spirit living within them, you're not to treat sex as just a bodily function. There is a spiritual reality taking place mysteriously in this life-giving union that God has given to us. Sex is about more than our bodies. And I I think we all deep down know that. That's why we are so captivated um, by sex, why it is uh, used in almost uh, so much advertising. It has a power beyond just the bodily power. It speaks to something greater that we were made for. Fourth and lastly, uh, fourth principle of the Christian sexual ethic. Sex, like everything else, has become distorted and is in need of redemption. We live in a broken world. Uh, The end of the scriptures was not Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 happened. That we as humanity did not trust God and His, His instructions for us, but have decided to try to determine for ourselves what is right and good in all aspects of life, sexuality included. And therefore, as you continue to read the Bible, the Bible is filled with graphic descriptions of life gone wrong, and that includes sexuality. Matter of fact, the Bible is disturbingly graphic about what has gone wrong sexually. And there's horrific accounts in the Old Testament of people being taken advantage of. I mean, in Genesis 4, just shortly after Adam and Eve, We have this man, Lamech, who begins to acquire multiple wives, treating women as possessions. This is not God's intention. This is God describing what has gone wrong in our world, not prescribing how we are to live. But thankfully, while we're here today considering this, is that Jesus has come to redeem. Jesus has come to restore. Uh, He has come to put humanity back together again, including our sexuality. And so God gives us good instructions about how we can live with a renewed and restored sexuality. So now that we have the larger teaching of the Scriptures, all right, let me uh, bring us to our text for this morning, Ephesians 5, 3. And we're going to look at three key words here and understand what Paul is telling us to turn from if we're going to walk in love as renewed Christians with our sexuality. In Ephesians 5, 3, Paul lists three words there. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness must not even be named among you. Those three things, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Let me define those terms. Uh, First, sexual immorality is a general term. Uh, It's a general term for sexual intercourse outside the covenant of marriage. Kind of a blanket term that covers a lot. Includes adultery. Includes sex with a person uh, of the opposite sex prior to marriage includes sex with a person of the same sex. It's a broad term, generally speaking. Then we go on to the next one, uh, impurity. It's an even broader term, and it means more than just sexual intercourse with someone, but it includes things like our speech, which is why Paul goes on to say, let there be no filthy words, crude joking, 
That's out of place. That's part of impurity. And then he goes on to say covetousness, which is desire. Uh, it's wanting what we do not have or are not experiencing. Now, we can covet a lot of things. You could covet a car. You could covet a house. It's wanting what you don't have. But here in this context, it really has uh, a real sexual implication, wanting someone that is not your spouse. And any sexual immorality, any impurity, begins with covetousness, wanting what we do not currently have or currently are not experiencing. Um, probably the person, I think, that is best summed up this idea of co sexual covetousness was the 1980s prophet Rick Springfield, who famously sang, I wish that I had Jesse's girl, right? That's exactly what this is talking about, all right? Now, taken together, what Paul is saying is that if we're to walk in love, we must not at the same time be pursuing thoughts, words, or deeds that are sexual outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Thoughts, words, and deeds. So it's pretty all-inclusive. Now, before we go on further to the next two aspects of our message, I just want to pause and say I recognize that not everyone in the room is at the same place considering uh, the Christian sexual ethic. And that's okay. I'm glad you are here. Uh, let me just kind of name probably the three perspectives that are in the room. Uh, first, some of you here uh, probably think that the Christian sexual ethic is morally wrong and experientially unfulfilling. Morally wrong and experientially unfulfilling. That is the predominant view in our culture today. It is the predominant view that the Christian teaching is restrictive and therefore harmful. It keeps people from experiencing all that they could experience. It makes people feel like they're on the outside. And especially the people uh, who are LGBTQ people, it causes them to be marginalized. So this is considered a harmful teaching in our culture today, therefore to be rejected. Now, I think for this perspective, the, the main question we have to grapple with is how do we determine what is morally right and good? How do we determine that? Is it when a majority of people within a culture arrive at a conclusion? Then that becomes the morally right thing to do? Or is there something greater, universal, that dictates what is morally right and morally good? The second perspective that probably is in the room this morning is that the Christian sexual ethic is morally right, but experientially unfulfilling. It's right, but man, I wish it wasn't. <laughs> Maybe this is someone who is right now not in a married, uh, marriage relationship and wants to be, wants to experience the joy of sexual fulfillment, but right now is not in that covenant union. Or maybe it's someone who's same-sex attracted and says, how does this play out in my life? Or maybe it's someone who is married, but attracted to someone that's not their spouse, that right now, sex does not seem that fulfilling. So the question for all of us, in, or those pe people in those circumstances, is how do we discover the goodness of God's wisdom? Because I'm confident that God is not putting before anybody a barrier to flourishing. What God is putting before us are instructions for life. The scriptures tell us all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. But sometimes those paths seem awful crooked, don't they? How do we come to see them as good? The third perspective that's in the room this morning 
is that the Christian sexual ethic is right and good. It is both right and good. Um, I hope um, that as you grow in Christ, this becomes the perspective you hold on to. But I think the question for those in the room with this perspective this morning, it's how can you hold this position winsomely? How can you love others who don't hold this position? See, unfortunately, many churches and many Christians have become hostile to the first two perspectives. Uh, Many Christians are angry that we live in a culture that no longer has the same worldview that historically the church has had and become upset with people who struggle to live out these teachings. And as a result, I think most people in our culture today do not think the church is a place where they could go to consider their sexuality. And that's a shame. Because Jesus fully believed this position. Yet, people were drawn to him who did not have this position. Again and again in the scriptures, we see prostitutes coming to Jesus. We see him interact graciously with a woman caught in adultery. We see Jesus talking to the woman at the well who had been married five times and was living with a man. These people experienced the grace and the truth of Jesus. Jesus did not disdain sexually immoral people, neither should the church. So how can we hold this sexual ethic winsomely? All right, now that I've given uh, kind of that caveat, let's dive into the remainder of the message. The second major point we'll consider is why is this teaching good? Um, What's so good about the Bible's teaching about sex? Uh, I will not dive into everything about this because this would be a whole series. But let me give uh, one main focus here. That is that the Bible teaches that the covenant of marriage is a boundary that brings freedom. The covenant of marriage is a boundary that brings freedom. Now, that thought might sound antithetical to you. How can a boundary bring freedom? And what we need to understand is that we live in a world today that views freedom differently than freedom has been viewed in the past. When we hear the term freedom, we primarily think freedom from, not freedom for. Freedom from is freedom from restriction. So freedom for us is not having rules, not being told what to do. We want to be free from outside restrictions, outside constraints, so we can make our own decision how to live, right? That's freedom from. Now, the scriptures paint a picture of freedom for, that we are free for a certain way of living. And what the scriptures call that is is love. We're free to love. God is freeing us to fully pursue the good of another. But we must define what love is. Love is not saying, I like how you make me feel. To love someone is to work for their good. Love is to will the good of another. And we don't usually talk about love like that. We say, I like how you make me feel, and that isn't love. So God is freeing uh, his, his people to truly love by giving us boundaries. Now, the covenant of marriage uh, does this in a couple ways. One is it protects us from harm. Uh, If sex is about giving ourselves fully to another, then to give ourselves to another only physically without giving ourselves emotionally, spiritually, and financially produces an an incongruity that's actually harmful. It may not seem it at the time, but it actually is harmful to our well-being to separate uh, the physical union of sex from the bonding of everything else uh, in our lives with another. God intends that to be done all together. That's one of the ways we truly love is to give ourselves 
fully to another. Another way that this boundary is helpful is the covenant of marriage frees us to enjoy sex without idolizing it. I mean, did you hear the language of the Ephesians 5 passage? It talked about idolatry. In Ephesians 5, 5, Paul wrote, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Interesting phrase, that is an idolater. You see, what Paul is telling us is that you know, sexual immorality isn't just bad behavior. It's not a list of things God's put on his naughty list. It actually, it's about treating created things as if they're God. It's making sex into a God. Saying, I have to have this for my well-being, for my identity, for my happiness. See, sex is a good thing. It's not a God thing. We can live a flourishing human life apart from uh, sexual expression. Jesus was the most alive human being ever, and he was a single celibate man. That's hard for us to put our, get our minds around, but that is the teaching of the scriptures. So the covenant of marriage frees us to enjoy sex without idolizing it. And then lastly, the covenant of marriage directs us to the ultimate source of love. See, sex is a signpost, not a destination. It's pointing us to a deeper reality, to a God who has made us to love and be loved, to know and be known, to an intimacy that is far deeper than anything we could experience with another human being. We're being pointed to that destination. The covenant of marriage directs us to the source of love. Uh, as, I, as I come to the, kind of the, the, the exit ramp here in this message, I think the big question is, well, how do we live this? Uh, quite honestly, the Christian sexual ethic is not typical in our day, and it was not typical when this was written. Matter of fact, the Roman culture uh, in which the book of Ephesians was written was far more permissive than our culture today. This made Christians very distinct to live this way with their sexuality, and it makes Christians distinct today, but difficult. So how do we live this? Let me just suggest uh, four ways that are, four things we must have if we're going to live this ethic. The first thing we must have if we're going to live the Christian ethic is humble repentance. Humble repentance. None of us arrives at this way of life naturally. In some way, shape, or form, the Christian ethic goes against the grain for all of us. And we must remember that. That, that all of us, if you take seriously the teaching of the Scriptures about marriage, about sexuality, it's natural for none of us. We aren't naturally committed to just one person. We don't naturally use our sexuality for the good of another rather than just our own pleasure. God is reshaping us to take this seriously. But the good news of the Scripture is that there is forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ for all sin. There is forgiveness. Jesus loves to forgive. He came, he died to take our sin upon himself. This is the message of the gospel. God's not saying, once you get your act together, once you can live decently in this area of your life, uh, then I'll accept you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were disobeying the commands of Jesus, Christ died for us. And that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There is no one here that is beyond the reach of God's mercy. And so this is not a teaching of get your act together. It is a teaching of look to Jesus. 
who has been faithful in our place, who loves us and wants to cleanse us and lead us into a life that is restored. We cannot live this apart from being grounded in the mercy of Jesus Christ that we receive through humble repentance. And so we all must humbly repent. The second way that we live the Christian sexual ethic is by having our identity grounded in Christ. Grounded in Christ. And this passage started in verse 1, Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children. That's how God sees you and I if we are in Christ. Man, do I need that. Because there are weeks when I know I do not live as a very good Christian. And Christ sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ as his beloved children. Now, being a father myself, I actually kind of can get this. My kids, from time to time, misbehave. Hard to imagine, I know. And that does frustrate me. But it has never once caused me to not love them. It has never once caused me to say, I don't want you around me. If, if I can sense that towards my children, how much more can God towards us? Our perfect Heavenly Father. And so He gives us an identity as His children. So we are not defined by anything else. We're not defined by our sexual orientation. That's not the truest part of us. We're not defined by our sexual desirability. That's not the truest thing of us. We're not defined by our sexual sin. For in Christ, we're defined as His beloved children. That's the foundation of our identity. The third thing that we need if we're going to live the Christian sexual ethic is genuine community. Genuine community. We are made for intimacy. We are made for love. But we're tempted in our society today to confuse intimacy with sex, as if they're just one and the same thing. You could not have intimacy apart from sex. And that is far from the teaching of the Scriptures. Sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is one form of intimacy. But there is intimacy among friends. There is intimacy between parents and children. There is intimacy among brothers and sisters. Intimacy is far bigger than sexual. Um, an author I really appreciate and respect highly, Rebecca McLaughlin, um, she said this, emphasizing the intimacy that we should pursue in the church together. She said, rather than seeing sexual and romantic love as the high point on a scale where friendships lapse at the low watermark, the Bible invites us to pursue human love in different forms, governed by different boundaries. Friendship is not the consolation prize for those who fail to gain romantic love. Sometimes in the church, we do err by overemphasizing marriage. Thinking that marriage is the be-all, end-all. It's not. Jesus tells us marriage does not exist in heaven. Marriage is a wonderful pointer to the truth of Jesus Christ here and now, but there is so much more to our relationships that we are called to. The church should be the place where single people feel the deep love and aren't only looking at those that are married as being on the inside. We all together are in Christ. The church should be the place for those who are same-sex attracted but seeking to live a godly sexual ethic can find deep intimacy and belonging. It's in the church that we have these deep, rich relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. So as we pursue genuine community, we're more able to live the sexual ethic of the Bible because we're experiencing real intimacy 
not only through the sexual union of husband and wife, but through friendship, through sibling relationship. Lastly, how do we live the Christian sexual ethic? Through spirit-filled virtue. At the end of this passage, Paul said, uh, don't be filled with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. That all, Christ- all uh, vices ultimately are turned from, not just by white-knuckling it and saying no, they're turned from by displacement. That the spirit comes in and begins to push out the things in our lives that God is not pleased with. Ultimately, we need a force greater than ourselves to push out sin. And so we, we look to Jesus Christ and how he died for us, how he rose, ascended, and then sent his spirit to take up residence within our lives. And by his spirit, he's now producing virtue, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit produces those virtues in our lives, and we grow into those. So in some ways, what we find is that as we grow in Christ, we do become more able to live the commands of the Scripture as the Spirit displaces the old and fills us with the new. We need Spirit-filled virtue to be able to live this life. I know this was heavy lifting today. Uh, Well done. You you hung with me. Uh, I am so thankful that the Scriptures uh, don't... um, avoid topics that are so key to how we actually live. Uh, Our sexuality is a massive part of us. And if the scriptures were silent on that, I mean, it would just leave us lost in life. So though this teaching may be hard, it is good. And it leads us to the goodness of life that God desires. And it leads us to love. I'll be praying for us in the week to come that God will continue to take this word and help it to sink down more deeply. And I want you to know too, if you have questions, I would love to talk further with you. So feel free to email or, or, uh, or call me. And I'd love to get together and talk. Right, let's pray together. Lord, I am so thankful uh, that you have given us your word to be a lamp to our feet, to be a light to our path. Uh, Lord, at times, uh, your word does confront us, correct us. And uh, that never feels pleasant. But Lord, uh, you're a good father. Uh, you do love us and you intend Uh, to lead us on paths that are good for us. So God, I pray for us here as a community of faith. God, I pray that you enable us to be able to walk in love uh, like you who has uh, come for us. God, I pray that you'd help us to turn from sexual sin in all its forms, in thought, in word, in deed. And God, to do so, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. But Lord, we know that you have died uh, just for this reason, to cleanse us of our sin. You have risen, you have ascended, you've given us your spirit now that we may live in a new life. So God, I pray that you'd help us to look to you, to not seek to do this on our own, but God, I pray that uh, along with the company of other friends, uh, Lord, uh, we would walk in newness of life. So thank you for this teaching. Please lead us in it in the week to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand, we'll close in
with a benediction uh, from Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go in peace.